Hey, good morning, Abundant Life. Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord? Even more rested, as Pastor Dan says, believe me, I am thankful for an extra hour. Uh, let's give God some, some thanks and prayer. Mm. Lord Jesus, how great you are, how marvelous you are to behold. Would you open our hearts to receive that joy that you provide us? Would you help us, Lord, understand that more and more and have it just so in the front of our minds and in our lives in this day and in the days ahead that all that we're experiencing would pale in comparison and all that we're feeling and all the adversity that is a part of our life would just be drawn in to your power and your presence. Lord, give me the words to say that are truly your words in our time together. We ask in your mighty and precious name. Amen. As you might have gathered, we're just starting on this series about the fruit of the Spirit. And you Bible scholars who have read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 know that we're speaking about, about nine particular aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And while this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list of what God's Holy Spirit provides us, it is meant to be both representative and important for us who claim the name of Jesus. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read in our text Galatians 5. We're not just going to read verses 22 to 23. We're going to start at verse 13 and go all the way to verse 26. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 26. I'm reading out of the NIV. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Amen. Please be seated. What a precious word and what a timely word for us, I'm sure, for each of our lives. This morning at 830, we're going to focus really on the quality of joy, even though the title says joy and peace. And at 11 o'clock, we'll focus on the topic of God's peace. But right now we're concentrating on joy. And let me just sort of set the expectation. Let me set the tone of what's going on here. This is one of the, 
the Apostle Paul's most angst written written letters. You can see if you read through this letter that he is greatly disturbed, kind of like a parent. Or if you've got young people in your life, if you're a teacher and there's things that you know that they ought to be doing, but they're not doing it. And, and even though you tell them they're still not doing it, even though you exhort them, they're still refusing. And Paul is just saying, you know, he cries out, you foolish Galatians. Earlier on, he just says, you guys don't get it. And what's really bothering him, what's really got him so worked up is that his precious spiritual children in Galatia are actually moving away from the true gospel. They're returning to a gospel that's really no gospel at all, Paul says. And it was a gospel based on works, based on getting back into one's Jewish heritage. And these were called Judaizers, and they were making sure that new converts, particularly the Gentiles that don't come from that Jewish background, had to now live like Jews. They had to observe their ceremonial purity of circumcision and other rituals. They had to eat and follow the dietary restrictions that went with being an Israelite. And Paul was saying, that's the old covenant. That's the old law that's no longer active. Because why? Because Christ came and blew that all away with his death and resurrection. You don't need to offer sacrifices any longer for your sins at the temple. Christ is our final sacrifice, the all-powerful sacrifice that we needed. So if you go back and do these things, you're actually rendering Christ's work useless. And so he's saying that is no gospel at all. So he's got these people on one hand, the Judaizers. Then, because there's Gentiles in the church in Galatia, he's got people from that Hellenistic Greek way of thinking that just said, hey, let it all hang out. Thank God I'm saved. And you know what that means? I can do whatever I want. I can live however raggedy life I choose to live. And God's got me covered. I may confess, I may not. But I just know that his grace is sufficient for everything I do. So we got... Legalistic people over here, let it all hang out people over there. And Paul is saying, you want to know really the way to live? You want to know really what makes a Christian? I'll tell you. And that brings us to chapter 5. But before we start to unpack that, let me give you guys a pop quiz. Remember pop quizzes when you were kids? Nobody liked them, but that's all right. Here they go. What is it that makes you a Christian? Here, here are the choices. I know I'm a Christian because I preach a lot to my colleagues, telling them a lot about Jesus. I'm a Christian B. I'm a Christian because I tell my family when they're sinning. People know I'm a Christian C because they overhear my Christian music. Or D, I'm a Christian because I don't drink at social events. All these are what? Outward signs of one's faith. And Paul is saying it's not about the outward sign. It's about the interior. And specifically, as we zero in on Galatians 5, 22 and 23, what is that fruit of the spirit that's being talked about? It's really being talked about as God's character. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Christ? Do you want somebody to really look at your life and accurately understand what it means to be in Jesus? Then develop the character of Christ in you. Let the work of the Holy Spirit have his way, cultivating those things, those attributes that reflect God in your life. And so Paul goes on to describe what that is. And he uses a really interesting metaphor. He uses this idea of the fruit of the spirit. It's fruit. It's like um, 
when, when we say it's fruit of the spirit, it's seeds that are planted in us. We didn't make the seed, right? We didn't create the soil. We didn't water it. Just like if you have a fruit tree, it can grow in the wild. The seeds that God has is, is already made are planted in the ground. The ground has nutrients. The rain comes on. And this thing grows on its own. And in a like way, when we became Christians, God gave us what? His Holy Spirit in our lives as a deposit, guaranteeing that future life to come. But while we're here in this time, this side of heaven, God is making us more and more like his son. He's changing our character more and more by the seeds of his character through the Holy Spirit planted in us. So there's nothing that we have to do with that. God continues to water that. Now, we can cultivate it. Here's, here's what I want to say. While God's spirit is working in us, we provide some cultivation. What is cultivation of the tree? Anybody who's raised a fruit tree, grown tomato vines, knows that it's not enough just to put the seed in the ground and just to water it. You actually have to monitor how much you're watering it. You have to keep pests off the thing. You have to what? Create space for that tree or those plants to grow. If you go up and down I-5, you'll see the Central Valley and you'll see tons and tons of orchards. And those trees are all in a row and they're all spaced according to a plan that maximizes the fruit that's being produced. God allows us, calls us indeed to cultivate that life of the spirit in us. Some of us really aren't making space to do that. Some of us are kind of confining God's spirit in us. I had a plant one time it was given to me. I don't know by who. And if I did, I'd have to forgive him by name. But they gave me a plant. They gave me a yucca plant that was in a little pot and it sat in my office for years. And I didn't know anything about a yucca plant. I don't know very little about plants at all. I've given you the sum total of my plant knowledge, my botany this morning by talking about the fruit of the spirit. But it's in my office It's growing by artificial light. And it was okay. Eventually, I took it home and we took it out and we planted it in our garden. And when we did that, the thing just grew like topsy, as the saying goes. If you know anything about a yucca plant, it loves to grow and it grows deep roots and they're hard to eradicate and it goes wherever it wants to go. And it's got spiky leaves, which are really irritating when you come against them. And we plant, we made the mistake not only of planting it. Don't ask me why we did that. We planted it near our neighbor's fence, so the fence started to get trashed. And eventually, you know, the gardener didn't want to deal with it, so we had to call in a professional to eradicate the yucca plant. Boo! I am not planting any more plants, period, let alone yucca plants. But here's the point. When you create space to grow, then you can truly bear the fruit that God has called you to bear. But if you stay confined, then you're going to have little fruit. And so we need to be about letting God do his growth in us. We need to say, Lord, what is it that's your agenda for my spiritual growth? What is it specifically that you want me to cultivate and not do on my own? Remember, this isn't about your own personal effort. It's not that you bear down on love and you say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to figure out how to love people. And I'm going to love them today and then I'm going to check that off and I'm going to love them tomorrow. And if I, if I did well, I get two stars. If I didn't do so well, I get a half a star. That's a lot of man-made effort. We need to understand that God very much is about creating this fruit in us. It's not our own. You know, Ben Franklin, some of you had to read the autobiography of Ben Franklin when you were, in kid, when you were kids in history class. I had to read it. And one of the one thing I remember is that when he was a young man, he actually made a list. Ben Franklin's 13 virtues, things that he wanted to 
cultivate in his life, but he did it sort of his way. He was one of the first guys to use a spreadsheet. He wrote the 13 virtues down on, on the on the column and across the row, he wrote Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And every time he did the virtue successfully, he put a little check. And when he didn't, he put a black dot. And his virtues were things that we would like, things like temperance, silence, resolution, cleanliness, tranquility, humility. Here's what he said about silence. The virtue of silence is to speak not what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanness in body, clothes, or habitation. Here's humility, getting a little more Christian. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. So I don't know how Socrates got in there for humility, but this is, this is Ben Franklin trying to be the man that he thought he needed to be. And, and we can take his example in terms of being intentional about it, but we don't take his example in terms of doing it all ourselves. If, if the, the, one of the big points to take away from this whole series on the fruit of the Spirit is very much that God is at work in each one of us. God is the one who is trying to bring this fruit to greater growth, to greater visibility, to greater transformation. Not only that we would live the life that he's called us to live, but that we would live a life that is attractive to other people. How attractive is it to you or was it to you when you came to faith? Was it some did you come to faith because you saw the fruit of the spirit in someone's life? Did you see peace when your life was chaotic? Did you see joy when your life was was just one sort of sorrow after another? Did you see somebody being really patient with you when you would have written that person off a long time ago if the shoe was on the other foot? Many of us have testimonies like that. Many of us can say it was because someone exhibited that fruit of the spirit in their life that attracted me to the author of that fruit, to God's spirit, to Jesus Christ. That was true in my own life. The guy who led me to the Lord in my first year in college was a guy who had a busier life than I did. Heavy academic workload, playing basketball, so having to do all that practices. We're in the same kind of social circles. And my life was sort of chaotic at that time. I was not really studying, not doing a lot, just really thrilled with being in college and not really thrilled with why I was at college, which was to study. So I was having a good time and I would look at his life and he was having a good time, too. But as a Christian, he had joy. As a Christian, he had peace. <clears throat> Excuse me. He wasn't sweating these things. And I would be anxious about tests and all that other stuff. Over time, he began to share with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while I would dispute certain things and I'd wrestle with certain stuff, I couldn't get away from two things. The reality of Jesus in his life and who he told me Jesus was and that Jesus wanted a personal relationship with me. Those were the realities. I, you know, I don't know that Methuselah was 900 years old and all that. That was our debate. But, but what never left, what was permanent, was his godly character, the fruit of the Spirit he exhibited, and the steadfastness of Jesus that he testified to. That's what brings people to know the Lord. That's why cultivating the fruit of the Spirit is so important. So we're going to talk about the specific fruit of joy at this point. What is joy? You know, joy, that word sort of conveys all kinds of stuff in an immediate way. Um, it's not merely the feeling of delight or elation or even euphoria at seeing God work some breakthrough in your life, work some good in particular ways. Even more importantly, joy is a mindset, 
A mindset that one is loved by God and secure in him by the all powerful, unshakable, loving God who not only gives us salvation, but he calls us to live this life for his purposes and to his glory. Drink that in for a moment. Joy fundamentally comes from knowing that God loves us, we are secure in Him, and He has given us a hope and a purpose in life. That unshakable, totally loving, unmovable God. We are connected to Him. And that is the source and the basis of our joy. Sometimes it is very emotional. Sometimes people can testify here to just being so caught up in that connection with God that you just have this huge emotional response. If you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, a great evangelist of the 18th century, there were times when he would just be walking in the countryside and it would be so put upon by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon him so forcefully that he would have such joy that he would have to ask God to stop. Lord, your joy is too much for me. I cannot take it. You know that the Apostle Paul said, he writes, he said, I was caught up into the third heaven, Second Corinthians, and I saw things that are just too wonderful to talk about. You know, there's times where God can impress through his Holy Spirit upon us that huge joy. There's just this emotional outpouring and experience. But that's not just the definition of joy. Joy oftentimes comes in that mindset, that conviction that, you know what? I'm okay. You know what? My God is all powerful. My God is all loving. My God knows what's going on in my life and he really cares about what's going on. That should bring us joy. That's what's meant to bring us joy. So I want to look at just a few characteristics of joy. Um, If you're taking notes, they'll uh, pop up on the screen. Just just to be clear. First thing that we see that you heard a moment ago is that joy comes from Jesus. You know, how do you know what joy is that the, that the Holy Spirit is working in our life? You look at Jesus. Pastor Eric, last night when he was talking about love, said that Jesus is the best mirror that we have of what these fruits of the Spirit are all about. So did Jesus have joy? Absolutely. He had the joy of being in the Father. So close was he with God that he said, I do only what the Father shows me to do in, in John 5. He said, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Such a close connection, inseparable between Father and Son, except on that moment where Jesus took all the sins of the world upon him. And in that instant, he felt the separation from his heavenly Father. But up until that point, and even after that point, there was always that deep abiding connection, that source of joy. Jesus then takes the joy that he knows from his heavenly father and he tells his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. We just celebrated when he gave the bread and the cup. He tells his disciples in that same time in John 16:22, now is the time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice And no one will take away your joy. See, when we're connected with God, that joy is permanent. When your joy is just based on circumstances, that's called happiness. You find a parking place at church. Happy. Right? 
Your team wins. You're happy. Right? Your team loses. Not happy. Circumstances go up and down. Our joy is meant to be, because it's based on God, it's meant to have a permanent aspect to it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't times when, we're, when we're, our world is rocked and we're so devastated. You just heard Pastor Herman do a seven-part series on when your world gets all shook up. When devastation and tragedy suddenly happen, you woke up that morning not expecting any, any bad news, and then suddenly you get some horrendous news. This isn't just, you know, you just keep smiling and you keep moving through it. No, that's not the kind of joy that we're talking about. And in those times, you don't necessarily feel. Joy isn't that first thing that's going to come to your mind. But God can come to your mind. Other aspects of God, His presence, His comfort, His care, even though you don't understand it. And joy comes out of His presence. And so there's times where even in those times, if, if we don't have it ourselves, bit by bit, God will bring us into the company of those that are still able to sing hymns, still able to pray, still able to praise God. Those are times where we need the body of Christ. And I'll just say kind of parenthetically that even though we're focusing on this fruit of the spirit as something that we specifically would want to build in our lives, they're also meant to be the feature of corporate worship. They're meant to be what characterizes a church. It's what should characterize abundant life. Love and joy and peace. It's what should characterize your growth group. When somebody walks in there, do they feel that? Any ministry leaders, it's what should characterize your ministry. Love and joy and peace. So joy comes from Jesus, the foundation of that. It comes from the fact that we know that we are dearly loved by him. That when he made us, he made us what does Genesis say? Very good. All his creation is good. Even yucca plants. But we are very good. And so we just sort of feel that delight if we allow ourselves to be open to that. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made, even after the fall, even with all our sins, even with all the stuff that we do, we can still say, as the psalmist does in 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So the stuff that we do that bothers God, that offends Him, that hurts others, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. And when we can experience that, we can feel his joy. Excuse me. Let's look at it. So joy comes from Jesus. The second point I really want to make about joy is that joy comes from following Jesus. Joy comes from obeying him. Now, it's kind of chic these days to not to say, well, I'm not a Christian, because that seems in some circles to have all kinds of you know, labels and tags associated with it. It's much fresher, apparently, to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm okay with that. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But here's the question. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are you following Jesus Christ? Are you going where he is leading? Or do you take a couple steps forward and then a step back? When he goes here, do you go there? Are you following? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I say. Busted. Yeah. There are times where I don't do that. If Jesus is leading you out of temptation's neighborhood, do you still insist on going back? Are you following? 
If Jesus is calling you to take on a new task or a new assignment, maybe it came out of the blue. Maybe you didn't even plan for it to happen. Maybe your grandkids just showed up on your door because of some crisis going on in the lives of your of one of your children. Didn't plan it. But is he calling you to do that? And if he is, you're going to be confronted with all kinds of fears and doubts and certain anxieties. But if he's following you, if he's leading you into that, are you following? See, when we follow him, it doesn't require us to have all the answers. That's why he's leading. But if we follow him, we know and we are trusting him to provide us for the answers that we need. And so we can experience joy, God's joy, when we are following him. And if we shrink back, then that joy is going to get a little fuzzy. It's going to get a little confused. It's going to get a little messed up. But we don't want that to be our our issue. We want to follow the Lord where he's leading. So if he's put on given you an assignment, a job, do you feel his joy when you're there? Some of you do. I know I talk to teachers who have given up careers in other fields to go and work for less pay with more work and more stress and more germs and all those things that go with teaching young kids. And they do that because they have a sense of being called by God to live that out. And when they do, they feel his joy. So if you're in my era, you probably saw chariots of fire at one point. And Eric Liddell is both a missionary, but he's also a gifted runner. And he's wanting to compete in the 1924 Olympics. And his sister doesn't think that that's really a godly thing to do. Thinks that it's really vain. But he has to remind her that when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And so I'm going to run to his glory. Here's the question. When you are serving in the calling that you are given, whether on the job or as a parent or as a, uh, a neighbor, certain things, callings, as a member of the family, do you feel God's pleasure in what you're doing? And I want to make the case that you ought to, that each of us should, because if God is leading us to do that, it's meant to be attended by joy, by understanding that he is delighted in us as we are faithful. Now, I said faithful. I didn't say perfect, flawless, Never a discouraging word is heard. No, let's be human about it, but let's be faithful about it. When we are faithful in the callings that God has given us, whatever those are, however difficult they are, we feel his joy. We feel his pleasure. So we want to follow where Jesus is leading. You want to feel the Lord's joy? Do you want to experience that? Then follow as he leads you to do that. Third thing I want to say about joy is that joy is grown in adversity. The harder things get, the more we can experience joy, God's joy. The more suffering seems to come our way, the more we can respond by rejoicing. Now, that seems a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? And I just said that there's times where we can feel so devastated that joy is probably the last word that's occurring to us. And I'm OK with that. But usually what we're talking about here is just the daily grind of life and the things that happen to us. The fender bender, the uh, some drop ball that you, you know, expected somebody to help you with the harsh word that you got in some circle. All that kinds all those kinds of things are what James calls them trials. 
And, and James says, he says, watch out, brothers, for trials. Avoid them at all costs, because if they come your way, they're going to overwhelm you. No, I don't think so. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And so, James, you know what's exciting, James? You know what he's telling us to get joyful about? He's saying when all that stuff is coming your way, guess what? God is at work in you. God is working his agenda through you. Far from these things overwhelming you, you're right where God wants you to be. You know, Paul writes this in his, in his opening chapter to, to the church at Philippi. He's in prison. He's in a Roman jail. And he says, far from my imprisonment restraining the gospel... It's actually been used to liberate the gospel because more and more of you guys are stepping up and preaching the gospel. You guys on the outside get to share the word. You used to be relying on me to do it, but now I'm in jail. I can't do it. So you guys are stepping up and doing it. So the gospel is getting even more airtime. It's being spread even further. And you know what's more? I got the guys covered inside jail because I'm chained to four guys for four hours a day, 24-7. And guess what I'm talking to them about? Jesus. So we got the palace guard on the inside and we got you guys on the outside. I'm rejoicing that I'm in jail because why? Because God's purposes are going forward because God's gospel is not chained, he says. And so we can rejoice when things are coming our way that aren't easy to deal with, that we prefer not to have. All those are real experiences. But we can rejoice because God's purposes are being furthered. What are some of those purposes? Well, he's maturing us. That's what James says. He's shaping our faith, which Peter tells us is of greater worth than gold. We will get to a point when we are with Jesus where he will say, you know what was really of value when you were on earth? Not the money that you got, not the reputation, not the job title. What was really of value was your belief and trust in me. We call that faith. Here's the glory that is yours. This is what Peter says, as odd as it seems. But this is the glory that is yours, brother and sister, because of what? Your faithfulness. When you're struggling in whatever those callings are, when stuff is coming out of left field to, to seemingly knock you down, James says, rejoice because your faith is being developed, because you're becoming mature and complete, because you're completing what God really wants to see completed in you, which is to be more like Jesus. And when we know that the Lord is pleased with how we go through those things, then that in turn gives us strength. That gives us strength to go through it. Even Jesus himself, Hebrews 12, 2 says is what? For the joy set before him, that joy of seeing salvation opened up to all mankind, to see the Father pleased and glorified. For the joy set before him, he what? He endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy that God has in you when you are faithful, isn't that motivation to endure and to push through those things? It should be. It needs to be. If we let it be, then we'll be in a much better place to, to live out God's calling in our life. But there's some things that steal our joy. I, I like to, I'm just kind of calling them stuff that are joy robbers. What, what robs you of joy? There's just a few things that I want to look at really, really quickly. First is, if we 
challenging circumstances. I've been talking about that a little bit. But if we choose to focus on those circumstances, if we choose to say, Lord, I can't take this. Lord, this is too much. Lord, when will that person stop working my nerves? How many times do I have to forgive them? Asked Peter up to seven times, because I'll tell you, even once was tough, but I can go seven. And Jesus says 70 times seven. Now, that is humanly impossible but not divinely impossible. This is why we can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. God has to do that. This is why the life in Christ, we cannot live on our own. God has to live that through us. And so if we focus on circumstances, you know what we're automatically doing? We're saying, I got to figure out how to do this some way. And Jesus is saying, no, you got to follow me as I lead you through these circumstances. You've got to get connected with some brothers and sisters who can lift your arms up in the midst of this battle and be supportive of you and sustaining of you. And I will get you through that. So don't let the circumstances that you're in rob you of your joy. Focus on what God is doing in the midst of that, how he's shaping you, how he's using your life to bless other people. Parents, how do kids know the reality of Jesus in your life? It can be in some ways through your uh, family devotions that you might do or time of prayer. Those I commend and those are good to do. But for the most part, in the however many years that you have with them, oftentimes 18 before they go to college or 22, and if they're coming back, 26, however many years you have with your kids, (laughs) the biggest testimony that you have about the life of Christ is how you live. They say, and it is true, That our faith is more caught than taught with kids. And it is so much more important in terms of caught than taught that your example will either reinforce what you're reading at home in the scriptures or it will countermand and counteract it. And guess what? Your example will trump typically what's read in the Bible because they basically conclude without ever telling you, man, if mom and dad aren't taking this seriously, I don't need to do that. And so... If we're getting freaked out by circumstances, we're we're transmitting that to those around us. We're transmitting that to our kids. We got to let God's joy be in the midst of that. We got to say, you know what? God's making a way. I don't know it, but he's making a way. The other thing that steals our joy is focusing on the opinions of others. Boy, that's a big joy stealer and a joy robber. It just takes away. When you focus on what other people are thinking... Does that just sort of pull you down, especially if it's negative? Oh, yeah, it does. And it can really erode the callings, the ministry that God's given you. Earlier in Galatians, we read that Peter, Paul uses an example from a a dispute in the church of Antioch where Peter was worried about what certain men from James, certain leaders within the church in Jerusalem came and looked at the freedom that the people in Antioch had. And Peter began to fear what they thought. And so he withdrew from the Gentiles. And because he's a leader in the church, he began to draw other people away as well because they followed his example. So that even Barnabas, the scripture tells us, was led astray. And it was so bad, it was so disruptive to what was going on in that church that Paul had to come. He said, I rebuked him to his face. Wow, public smackdown of Peter, one of the leaders, the, one of the most important leaders in the church and in scripture. So leaders, you know, pastors, ministry leaders, growth group leaders, our elders, we all have to be before the Lord humbly and saying, Lord, am I following your word? 
as you've revealed it, not only to me, but to all those leaders in the church, because Peter knew that it wasn't right to separate from the Gentiles. He'd been given a revelation from God in terms of dealing with Cornelius. He knew what the deal was, but he feared the opinions of others. And we dare not do that. We must submit to what the Lord says and what we know to be true, that we might not lead others astray. So don't worry about the opinions of others. Take that attitude from the Apostle Paul, who said, you know what? Said this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 4. I don't care if I'm judged by you or anybody else. My judge is one being, God the Father, and it is to him whom I'm accountable. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't listen to the Corinthians. He did listen to them. He didn't, you know, doesn't mean they didn't talk, that he didn't, that he ignored their, you know, what they were writing, what they were saying. No, he took all that in. But he concluded that you guys aren't speaking with the mind of God. You're criticizing me on all kinds of things that aren't true. And it is the Lord that I belong to. And it is he who will judge me. So don't let the opinions of others take you from God's leading. Final thing that, that, that robs us of joy is just the busyness of life. You know, there's times it's not something where we say, Lord, I'm not following you, or we, we don't make a conscious decision to enter into temptation. But we just let the stuff of life kind of heap on, and pretty soon we're forgetting that beautiful life of the Spirit in us. That, that God really wants us to experience joy in our day. One practical way to think about that, uh, practical help, if you will, is just to bring your day before the Lord. Most of us, most of our days have a certain routine, a job taking care of, uh, you know, elderly parents or children, school, homework, travel time. Bring that to him and just say, Lord, help me to see your joy and experience your joy through that day. Help me to understand how you're building that in my life through adversity as well as through breakthroughs. If you do that, you'll find that you're able to experience the Lord's joy more and more. Uh, Beth Moore offers a practical example of this. My wife, Vicki, shared this with me. She writes, you know, this morning I got a call from my firstborn and could tell she was having a rough Monday morning. She was trying to get her home in order after a busy weekend and still make it to her desk on time. There's nothing like trying to be a domestic goddess and employee of the week at the same time, is there? I told her that one of the most powerful mood changers God ever taught me was to open my mouth and say, I choose joy. I may not feel it, but God has appropriated it and I choose it. About an hour later, I received the following email from her. See if you can relate to this. The email said, I'm choosing joy. The Lord has refreshed my spirit and given me a new perspective. What a minute cross I have to bear on any given day. I had to repent of being a spineless clot of grievances. Honestly, I would be an absolute mess without the Lord. I only need him more and more every day. And so I just want to close with just the, a, a practical piece here. That the joy of the Lord is something that God is actively working in us. But we cultivate that joy of the Lord as we create space for it. As we bring our day and our circumstances and our surprises before the Lord. And we say, Lord, I don't want anything that I'm experiencing to diminish the life of the Spirit in me. I don't want it to take away my love for people, the joy that I have in you, or the peace that you provide. I want to live in the power of the Spirit that I might glorify you 
and show others what life in you is truly like. And if we would make that our aim and our goal, God would set this place on fire, set your circle on fire, be so attractive to those he's already ordained to come through your example. I just pray that this really goes deeply into each of our hearts, mine included, that it would truly transform us. Amen. 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 Would you stand with me? Because I just want to invite, I want to open up this altar. Amen. I want to open up.